Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. and you make noise, you risk actually being part of the Trojan horse plot and exhibiting behaviors which are indicative of the Trojan horse plot. Back in the early 2000s, a group of Muslim parents led by Tahir Alam decided they were no longer going to tolerate poor outcomes for Muslim pupils in Alam Rock, Birmingham. They were going to proactively break the decades of underperformance and social deprivation that came from it and challenge the prevailing narrative in the world of educationalists and local politicians, a narrative that young, largely Pakistani students were destined to occupy the bottom strata of society. Aspiration was a privilege they could never have a share in. Tahir set about deconstructing these social barriers, and within time he and his colleagues, who volunteered to join school governorships of Birmingham's deprived schools, had miraculously turned things around. Schools that were the worst in terms of attainment were now constantly achieving enviable pass rates. In this process, Tahir won plaudits from school authorities and local politicians and within time earned the respect of national educational bodies and national politicians. He was called upon to help other governing bodies steer committees and advise on education policy. At the core of his success was to make disenfranchised students feel a sense of belonging. And that in part meant being aware of and open to facilitating their cultural and religious practices. Such an approach was not new. Education theorists have for years suggested that students that have a stake in the system do much better. However, in a post-9-11 world, Tahir's forthright views that schools should be a place where Muslim students should be allowed to be Muslim, also raised concerns. The new conservative government had come to the view 
that Islam as a practiced faith was in itself an obstacle and austere or so-called conservative interpretations of Islam were part of a broader extremist threat. At the forefront of this divisive approach was the Education Secretary, Michael Gove, who as a journalist had written an incoherent polemical work arguing that there was an Islamist plot to undermine Britain. Gove saw his chance to unravel the good work of Muslim educationalists after a discredited letter, now known as the Trojan Horse Letter, was anonymously sent to Birmingham Council in 2014. Amongst its salacious claims, it revealed that Tahir was at the head of an Islamist plot to take over schools and prepare them for extremist views. The rest, as they say, is history. The letter discredited on multiple occasions as a work of malicious fantasy was embraced by Michael Gove and the Department of Education and within time Tahir and dozens of Muslim governors and teachers were barred from education. The Trojan horse affair upended education policy in the UK and gave rise to one of the most problematic policies, the prevent policy, a subject of the next show. If you haven't already, the New York Times serial podcast on the subject is worth a listen. Tahir and his colleagues were vindicated as concerned parents caught up in a systematic programme of Islamophobia. Riaz Hassan and I caught up with Tahir to try to understand the motivations of government and others hell-bent on turning back the tide of young Muslim achievement and in the process stoking Islamophobia. Uh, Brother Tahir Aram, uh, Jazakallah Khair for joining us today on the Thinking Muslim podcast. Um, I know you've already given a number of interviews since the New York Times serial podcast, and I don't really want to repeat the very good discussions you've already had. I would like our listeners, or I would like to refer our listeners to uh, a very good podcast, the Islamic podcast, uh, where I think you raise some really interesting uh, discussion points, and it's worth uh, it's worth for our listeners to 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 have a look at that. But today I want to possibly look at some of the broader, let's say, political issues that come out uh, of the uh, serial podcast and, um, uh, and that I think need further discussion or elaboration. Uh, but I suppose before we start, uh, can you summarise your feelings since the serial podcast revelations um, and investigation? Uh, do you feel a sense of personal vindication, Tahir? Uh, I contributed to this uh, particular podcast, um, which began some four years ago, and uh, it took rather a long time to produce, and they came to see me a number of times, just putting facts to me, sometimes challenging me on things, and sometimes asking, you know, difficult questions to me as well, because they were quite objective, actually, and they asked me some very tough questions on record, if you like, you know, they were recording those things. And uh, so when the podcast uh, cast came out, um, I mean, I was, I was, um, I have to say, I was surprised the extent to which actually they managed to take this particular investigation um, and the various uh, revelations that came to light. And uh, what the podcast actually uh, shows uh, quite vividly is the entire Islamophobic context in which all of these events actually took place. I think they really bring that out very succinctly and very clearly and evidentially as well. That, you know, very sensible, very reasonable, very objective uh, view of 
you know, or handling of these uh, situations would normally have resulted in something very different. And people have asked the relevant questions. Uh, you know, they would have been, um, uh, they would have exercised their right to not to believe, if you know what I mean. But instead, what happened was that whatever people were fed by officialdom, if you like, uh, the media absorbed that without questioning it. Uh, and of course, obviously, the government agencies that were involved, including Ofsted and the appointment of the anti-terror um, uh, chief uh, cop, actually, uh, Peter Clark and so on, that set the tone for the whole, um, you know, the offensive or the attack against our schools. It set the tone. And everybody seemed to have sort of just followed the tone without uh, actually questioning uh, from a journalistic point of view or from agencies which were independent, uh, you know, of, of, of government, you know, at least on paper, for example, Ofsted. For our listeners, Ofsted being the government schools inspectorate. Uh, they came in and they were fulfilling a kind of, a, from what I could tell, you know, a predetermined agenda. They did not go about the business as they normally would and so on. So I have, from the outset, always, from the beginning, my position has always been consistent. And that's because it's based on truth. And that's what maintains the consistency of the position. I've never altered what I've said. And I've never regarded, and I said it at the time when I was the chair of the trust, that I had, uh, <clears throat> that I did not regard these, uh, these uh, investigations, nor the reports, to be a fair or credible. And I've said that very consistently. So most of these kind of allegations that are printed in the media, for example, there have been a few articles recently, uh, just repeating old things uh, that were being circulated, just allegations, not facts, allegations being circulated. And I do feel a sense of uh, vindication, actually, or not a complete vindication, obviously, because I can still remain barred from working in education. So that blight, if you like, is still that's um, um, uh, is, is still on my sort of character and on my sort of position. Uh, so that's very real. So, but nonetheless, what the podcast shows actually is the uh, is the fallacious nature of the whole offensive against our schools that it was never justified, and the witnesses that have been brought forward, uh, you know, they were pursued. Clark report report was analysed, and they showed you know the huge gaps. And uh, something that obviously I've known for, uh, I mean, that's not news to me. That's something that I've always argued from the beginning. But nonetheless, uh, they brought about it, you know, much more evidentially by cross-checking, by corroborating and by verifying uh, witness testimonies and so on. And, uh, you know, what came out, you know, from my point of view was, was very positive. And I do feel a, a sense of indication. And therefore, um, I am actively speaking to, to, to challenge the narrative that became a social reality. Sorry, Tahir, what do you mean by a narrative that became a social reality? And when I say social reality, what I mean is that, uh, as described by Professor Holmwood, that there was the initial you know, hype around the allegations, you know, jihadists taking over schools, extremists taking over schools, radicals taking over schools, you know, and extremist teaching in schools, there was the initial fantastic headlines that we had. Um, uh, and of course, when the investigations were done, all of the investigations, in fact, not one of them found any evidence of there being 
a conspiracy or a plot. No evidence, even according to Clark, as an example, who is the anti-terror, even according to him, there's no evidence found of any extremism, radicalization, um, you know, or terrorism of any description whatsoever. Although he does mislead uh, in his report, uh, actually, because he does put very misleading and distorted entries, which actually falsify the reality uh, through omission and sometimes through distortion. But nonetheless, he concluded that there was no plot uh, and that there's no sort of, uh, you know, conspiracy uh, in, in that way. He says something, there was something less than that. But nonetheless, no extremism. So when I went for my barring order, of course, there's no allegations of me, anything, any kind of extremist activity taking place within our schools whatsoever, full stop. No such allegations have been made against me. Uh, uh, but in the public uh, mind, if you like, more broadly, more socially, there is uh, an image, you know, left uh, in view of the hype and the five and a half, six months campaign in the media, you know, full blast media, you know, vans and everything outside. And every day it's in the news and, uh, and, and in print media, in screen media, social media and so on. Uh, so, so there is a, a kind of a, a social reality to the idea that, you know, there was no smoke without fire. Something must have happened, you know, we can't, well, okay, they, well, they didn't find any extremism, whatever, but there must be something wrong, you know, there's something not right about the whole thing. So that, that image has kind of, that narrative, um, you know, has become sort of accepted or cemented uh, in the minds of people in a wider society and people who are distant from, from the truth, as it were, and, and who don't know more details. Uh, so I think the podcast has been very positive in that sense. It, it's shone a light on the extent to which there is Islamophobia in this country, uh, you know, uh, is, is, uh, has come out very clearly. And the evidence base that was used against us, of course, and the laziness of journalism, the laziness of the court system, for example, and the, and the belligerent uh, denial of uh, disclosures and then uh, the threats and so on. So a lot of Department of Education disclosures have still not been made. They are refusing to do that. So for example, I'll give you a very simple example. I, have, I went to court. I simply requested that the meeting minutes, uh, sorry, the, the, the minutes of the meeting held between Michael Gove and Albert Moore should be given as a disclosure in my case, because uh, uh, my argument was that these Ofsted inspections and these reports that you're relying upon, particularly after inspections, they were relying on after inspections more than the others in my case. And I said, these inspections uh, were done within a state of moral panic. And that these inspections were also commissioned by the Secretary of State for Education. And that, uh, that, that they were sort of Islamophobic in nature because of the Trojan horse letter and the context that it created, the political and the media storm that it created. So all these things, they happen with this, within this very contaminated uh, context. And therefore, uh, none of these uh, uh, reports uh, were fair. And we had evidence to obviously back that up, not just making that particular claim. But there are other things like, uh, for example, when the first inspection happened, uh, right, you know, against uh, all precedents, you know, I've never heard of that myself. I'm an Ofsted inspector myself. 
I've worked for the Department of Education as a national leader of governance, as the governance expert, if you like, one of the governance experts in the country supporting other schools. Um, so I'm very familiar with these things, but I never, but, but uh, I suppose technically that could be done. But it was very unusual. After doing the inspection, they did not put the school into special measures, meaning the failure of the school. They didn't put it into a special category, which means that uh, special category is the worst category. And, and when you put a school into special categories, the important thing is that it gives right to the Secretary of State for Education to then to intervene. When the first inspection happened on the 4th, 5th of uh, March 2014, the then inspector, because this is an outstanding school, is something you have to appreciate. It's not easy to take down a school which has got all measures in the top category of one, 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 and one, outstanding for everything. When did, when did you reach outstanding status with Ofsted? It was in 2012 inspection under the new framework. Uh, and, and what led behind that outstanding uh, accreditation by, by Ofsted? Uh, it was, uh, the school was obviously, uh, you know, performing academically, delivering the achievement for the children was the main factor. Uh, apart from the fact that we had very, uh, very, uh, you know, very um, uh, supportive uh, culture within the school, very good working relationship with parents. And, um, and we, we gave a sense of vision to the children of themselves in the future. So they were kind of motivated because motivating young people is one of the biggest challenges that we have, quite frankly, you can't motivate them to do anything apart from sit in front of the games and things like that. So it's a challenge, but it's something that we kind of became quite good at over a period of time. You know, we had very good people um, and I don't wish to claim credit for myself. There's very lot of excellent people actually who did, you know, work on the cold face, as it were, and uh, who made enormous contributions and sacrifices to achieve those things. You, ha you had a 75 percent pass rate, I believe, in 2014. That's right. Yes, yeah. so the results have been consistently in the 70s for the last four years, from 2009, you know, 71, 72, 75, 73. Uh, we, were, yeah, we were right up there. And what was it before, Tahir? When I, the, the funny thing about my involvement in this school, actually, the irony of it, and, um, uh, is that when I joined this school in 1997, uh, 7th of January 1997, in fact, um, uh, the school results were 4% and the school was in special measures, meaning it was a failing school, special measures. And then when the day I left the school on the 15th of July 2014, the school had results of, uh, I think, 72% for that particular year, if I remember. Uh, and the school was also in special measures. So it says something about Ofsted, I think, more than anything else, for those people who can reflect and think that a school with 4% in special measures, the school with 75% is in special measures. What lay behind this pretty radical shift in, in, in grade improvements? I mean, what did you and the governing body do to, to turn this school around? Um, I mean, it's a number of things, really. It's difficult to pinpoint one thing, but we did have an approach uh, which we consistently pursued all the way. And one of this particular approach was that it was a belief in the fact that these children's destiny was not to actually fa educationally fail. We wanted to break, the, we had this motto, which said, uh, if I remember correctly now, that we want to break the link between deprivation and destiny, between deprivation and destiny. So this is in a 
Alamark area, you know, high levels of unemployment, uh, high kind of crime rate, you might say, and all the other factors that contribute to children underachieving nationally. Uh, so we wanted to break that link, and this is the motto we had. And uh, so we established that, you know, these children can achieve as well as anybody else could. And that's a principle that we always followed through in every meeting, in every target setting exercise, in our communications where when we recruited teachers, we would talk about these kind of things so that we were developing a very high expectation for the children. But at that point, when uh, you joined the governing body and, and you, know, you saw these results of 4%, what was contributing to um, the failure of students? What, what was inhibiting their progress uh, beyond those very low standards? Yeah, you ask a very important question, actually. Um, there was an acceptance that these children couldn't achieve much higher than that. In fact, the teachers, uh, the attitude of many of the teachers, not all of them, obviously, many of the teachers was that we were doing a great job for them because these children come from the foothills of Pakistan. As one of the teachers said to me, what do you expect these children to achieve when they come from the foothills of Pakistan? Yeah, meaning they are village people, uneducated people, you know, uh, uh, and, and you can't have high expectations of them. They can't achieve uh, great things. You can't expect all of them to go to university and stuff like that. So there was this kind of, an accepted culture that they could not achieve. So the school didn't feel, you know, that they were failing the children in one sense. They kind of were comfortable with it, is what I found when I went in there. The other thing, the interesting things that I discovered when I became uh, uh, the chair of the governing body in the first meeting, which was rather unusual, very odd thing to happen actually. But anyway, um, so when I went into the school, for the, for the first three occasions, in, in, uh, interestingly, when I went into the school, I observed three fights. So maybe that's just a coincidence. You know, it was the only fight. Maybe they were waiting for me. As soon as I walked in, there'd be a fight. <laughs> so I observed three fights. And the teachers were somewhat embarrassed because the chair of governors is coming in. And he's coming three times. And there's three fights. And one of them, chairs are being thrown around. Um, so, uh, so scuffles, you know, broke out and uh, one of them was quite nasty actually because the children started showing the uh, throwing the chairs around and there was like a proper punch up between two um, groups of children anyway and um, so I so, so the school was kind of very neglected uh, in that sense really I went into I remember one activity which I did I said I can I be shown around the school so um, so the deputy had kindly uh, showed me around so he got his keys and things and he went around. So I just walked around the school and then the, one of the first things we came to actually was the toilets. I said, can I go into the toilets? He said, Mr. Ron, these are student toilets. The, uh, the staff toilets are elsewhere. So you can go over there. I said, no, no, I want to see the student toilets because the toilets speak volumes about school. You know, they say, say, they say a lot about a school. So I said, no, no, I want to see that. I said, I haven't got the keys, Mr. Alam. I said, kindly, please just get the keys and I'll have a look at them. So anyway, he, got, he went away and got the keys and I went inside. Five toilets on the right-hand side. Only one of them has a seat. Um, and, uh, and only one of them has a seat and only one of them has a lock. All the other locks are broken. All the other seats are broken. And they're not really usable. And they stink. Absolutely stink. Uh, 
and uh, so and there is water everywhere you know children have been made a mess everywhere kind of thing um, and that's what I saw really and so um, so how did we improve the school is what you're asking me so that was probably one of the first actions that I did in improving the school so I said to the deputy head I said uh, you know why are the toilets in this condition he said Mr. Alam if we repair them next week we'll be same position again, the seats will be broken, locks will be broken, and there was graffiti on the wall everywhere. He said, it'll be the same again. So we don't put them on, we just keep one thing work. We just keep one toilet basically functional and the others, we don't repair them. This is what they apparently were doing anyway. I said, look, I want these toilets in complete functional um, uh, arrangement here all the time. I said, if they break it twice in the week, you put them on twice in the week. Okay, simple. So we're not gonna accept that. So you just put them on. So he said, okay, fair enough then. So then they basically started doing that. Because you see, the reason why this is not, this is not a minor point, this is a very major point. For children to flourish in a setting, in a school environment, the social context and the aspiration that kind of draws out are very, very important. Any child that comes to that school and goes to that kind of toilet and they see that, they're not gonna have a high expectation of themselves because it's a humiliating situation. We are humiliating the children. So, so you improve the facilities of the school, you change the way uh, the children were perceived by the teachers, you improved uh, the expectations for teachers and, and, the, governing, and the governing body and, and, and the uh, senior leadership team had of students. But I suppose the, the accusation that was that ultimately led to your resignation and bar from volunteering at, at, uh, at a school level was that you promoted and facilitated Islam at Parkview Academy. Uh, and I suppose in, in the context of you know, the war on terror and, and sort of the, the hysteria that, that surrounds Islam in, in public discourse, that must have raised alarm bells, um, especially after this fraudulent Tro uh, Trojan horse letter made its rounds. Um, what lay behind this approach of yours to facilitate Islam in, in, in your school? Uh, actually, the important um, uh, sort of principle that we had was that if children are confident in themselves, they will do well in school. So they must have self-confidence, self-worth, self-value, and a sense of ambition then can be instilled in them to do well. And to, to, to be able to do that, they have to be comfortable in their own skin, comfortable in their own skin, which means that you have to value their background and uh, whether it is a racial background, whether it is um, a religious background, whatever their background is, they have to be made to feel comfortable in relation to uh, who they are. And that will engender greater confidence in, uh, in them. And so this is something that we valued. And our school is 99% children, uh, sorry, in, in the school, 99% of the children were uh, uh, of the Muslim uh, faith. So we obviously catered for, we began to cater for those children. Uh, we applied for a determination and all of the things that we, we included actually within the school they were, you know, very much in line with regulations and were compliant. And 
No, not at all. Not at all. Even to the end, we've never, we, we didn't do that. We were, we were operating within the realm of the regulations and so on. So we applied for a determination, a part determination. So we have, began to offer Islamic collective worship, which is part of a statutory requirement, uh, which was later criticized by Clark because of his ignorance uh, about the legal requirements and so on. He thought that was going above and beyond. But obviously, he didn't know any of the legal stuff, really. So he thought this was uh, not right. Um, and uh, so we made provision for children to pray in school, for example. We built wuzu facilities for them so they don't make a mess in the toilets that you will remember. So that the water doesn't go on the floor everywhere, create a health and safety risk. So we built some proper facilities for them to be able to do that. Um, and we tried to create a cultural respect, really, for, for, for the cultural background of the children quite frankly, what we were not trying to do was to save these children from the oppression of Islam. I want to be very clear about that, okay? Because there is a, that kind of mindset there as well. So we were not trying to do that. We were just trying to do accommodate the needs of the children, uh, for, you know, based on parental demands and the people that we were actually serving. Now, this is very normal and was normal and quite acceptable, you know, during that period and even beyond that period as well. This is nothing odd about that at all. Riaz, yes. When did this start to change, or when did the perceptions of the authority start to change about the school? Because on the one hand, um, I read in the serial and in other places that the school was being uh, shone as a beacon of hope for inner city schools and was the exemplar uh, institute for many of things in terms of how you turn around a school. Um, so this aspect of Islam that you talk about in the school was this always present? Was this um, kind of ignored at first? And then was it kind of highlighted later to kind of lambast a school? Or how did that kind of uh, series of events unfold? And, you know, what was the turning point, really? If you look at the Ofsted inspections of Parkview prior to the interventions in 2014, if you look, read 2012 report, if you read the one before that, and so on, you will find that all these practices, including Islamic collective worship and the way we cater for the children and the community that we are serving and, and, and so on, all those things, the spiritual, moral, social and cultural development of the children, all of those things are highly praised. Okay, They're all highly praised in the report. So they're not something new. They're not hidden or anything. We always made a point of showing that to inspectors and they always praised them. Uh, as being excellent practices which benefited the children, okay? What is good for the children is what's important in a school. And they said this was good for the children and they flourished in this environment. And, and we had uh, evidence base for that, obviously, with the academic outcomes, uh, as well as outcomes in terms of their spiritual, moral, social, and cultural development. Because education is not simply about academic education. No, that's not education. Education is about the development of the whole child, you know, how you prepare them to be a successful human being, if, if you like, you know, in the world and relate to other people and not just serve themselves, but be, be able to serve other people too, um, to be a good human being, to be a good neighbor and so on. So all those things were very important in the school and we try to inculcate and develop those things uh, within the children. So all these things were praised. Um, I suppose you're saying to me, well, what was the shift, if you like, you know, at what point did it happen? In what ways did it happen? I mean, what I can sort of, a few things I can say about that. 
One is that um, there was a government change and there was a policy change that uh, the uh, due diligence, for example, uh, extremist units, uh, extremism units were set up in the Department for Education, um, you know, particularly after the conservative government came into power. Michael Gove had responsibility for education, and we know his views, of course, about Islam and Muslims and so on. And, uh, and uh, in his book, Celsius 77, it should be quite clear that uh, what he believes. So he had a very different way of looking at things. And, um, and at the same time, of course, the government changed some policies in schools being uh, were encouraged or rather forced in many cases, actually, to become academies. So there's an openness agenda as well, that things should open up. And uh, the free schools program was also uh, set up as well, where people could, parents and community could get together and open new schools. So these were new things that were being introduced into the education system. So as part of that, of course, um, uh, we uh, became an academy in 2012. Um, and uh, when we converted, we were invited then by the Department for Education uh, to apply not for an individual conversion of the academy, uh, which was the Parkview School, but they wanted us to become um, uh, a multi-academy trust so that we could support other schools. This is at their suggestion, not our suggestion. So we then applied for a multi-academy trust, which was fast-tracked through, and we were given the multi-academy status. We then, to, we then <clears throat> uh, Secretary of State uh, Michael Gove at the time, uh, so he signed on this um, uh, takeover of a school. Uh, the, the, the plot is that these guys are taking over schools. Are you with me? So there's a plot and they're taking over schools and so on and Islamizing them. But all these signatures, my Gove signatures are on those papers and my signatures are on those papers. So we've been given those schools, the irony of it, yeah? And you know, the, the fallacious nature of Peter Clark's report, the dishonesty of people to Clark's report is that none of the things I'm saying to you now are documented anywhere. They are on DFE records, their papers signed. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to talk about any of those things. He doesn't want to mention those things because, because he, it, kind of, um, it, it's, it hinders the conclusion that he wants to arrive at. We as a Muslim community are often accused of being conspiratorial in, in many ways and thinking there's agendas behind everything. Um, but on this issue, it seems as if you know, you're being accused of a, a plot, but it seems that the plot is the other way around. There seems to be a plot or an agenda against, um, you know, Muslim values in school, if you like, or you know, the Muslim attainment or attainment of Muslims in these schools. So do you think it was that? Do you, do you think that the authorities were looking for an example to be made out of a certain school or a certain locality? I, I think that what actually, I mean, there are a number of things that happen really. I can't say whether... Um, how people were thinking, really. Uh, that would be a bit of a stretch, really. But I think uh, what, what is important um, is that there was a shift in policy and, um, and it was not envisaged as part of that shift. It was not envisaged that Muslims might end up establishing free schools and establishing academy, multi-academy chains, that they will run those schools. So this is an idea that I think didn't sit well with uh, you know uh, Islamophobes, if you like, people who have very prejudicial views about Muslims, 
uh, like Michael Gove, you know, who has a record of working with um, a, a, a campaign organization on these issues, uh, policy exchange, and so on. Uh, so he had those kind of views anyway, but nonetheless, it was not envisaged, I think. So when uh, I suppose, you know, whatever triggered it, there was one or two complaints and things like that, that, that went in, whatever, and those complaints would normally have been handled, you know, in a, in a normal scenario, the complaints would be handled, you know, by contacting the academy, and we will then respond to those complaints. Those sort of things happen all the time. They're just normal things that happen in any school, okay? So if somebody complains, you write to the academy and say, we have received this complaint. Can you please respond to these issues? We want to be assured that there's no, uh, you know, serious issue here. And if you need to rectify things, you should rectify them and that'll be the end of the matter. That's a normal way of kind of addressing issues and concerns that are raised within the school. So these issues, uh, you know, may well have been raised and one or two I'm aware of were raised. Um, and uh, so, so, so they were there really, but what actually the circumstances that uh, I suppose catapulted or caused the explosion, although, uh, you know, the particle, the paraffin particles were already uh, in the air in some density. So it took a little bit of a spark really to create an explosion. So the Islamophobic atmosphere had already been created for a while, you know, the demonization of the Muslim community, uh, press coverage, 85% of the articles run, you know, were, are negative, according to the research done you know, a few a couple of years ago. So the atmosphere, uh, not a couple of years ago, but even before that, really, so the vast majority of articles are negative. So they had already created this at atmosphere, really. So I think that that context probably played a role of some description, I would have thought. Um, but uh, then came the Trojan horse letter, of course. And when uh, so that actually caused the explosion because when that landed on Michael Gove's desk on the 14th of January, I think, he took the matter very, very seriously. He raised the matter with the department for, sorry, with the home office as well, that perhaps this should be uh, investigated under you know, extremism and radicalization and uh, terrorism legislation, which is totally different than the DFE one. In the end, whatever, whether uh, Theresa May refused or whatever the case was, I'm not familiar 100% with that, but she didn't do it anyway, we know that. And then Michael Gove then <coughs> was told that the, as the podcast reveals, we were talking about the podcast earlier, so the podcast also reveals that Michael Gove had been told very clearly on the meeting of the uh, 12th of February, uh, a documentation was given to him and he was quite clearly told that the Birmingham City Council, after consulting the police and the counter-terrorism unit, they had concluded that you know the letter was bogus and they didn't afford it much uh, credibility. Yeah, So that's very clear in the podcast. Uh, he, he knew about that, he'd been fully briefed in spite of that, of course, he continued with what he initially had intended, you know, from even before that. He carried on the plan rather than revisiting the plan and saying, look, you know, we need to sort of look at uh, what's going on here or make some inquiries, send some people in, have a look. It's not a problem. You know, the school is very open to those things. You can send some people in, investigate it. They can have a look and then report back and the matter would be resolved whether there is something or not something. But no, that's not what he wanted to do. Yeah, he wanted to do it in a full blaze of publicity. The media was uh, leaked various information, fed information, I would say, to create the hysteria and to create the frenzy 
you know, which had eventually surrounded our schools. Uh, that was the approach, that was the method that was used and employed to actually justify in the public arena, the interventions in the school, uh, which was completely unnecessary. If you want to look at what's happening in the school, of course, the school is open to that. You would go, you establish, come through normal procedures. But no, uh, you know, the Trojan Horse letter changed all of that. And the, and the rest is sort of, you know, history, as it were, and is well recorded, you know, from what happened. So uh, at the time this was happening, did you, did you and some of the colleagues uh, that were involved, did you get a sense that there was a particular agenda on this front? I mean, was there a certain amount of naivety within ourselves as a community? I mean, as a collective that we thought, well, this is just a normal, you know, cut and thrust of normal school politics and we're just dealing with this thing here? Or did you sense that something bigger was going on? Because I read somewhere, and I'm just going to quote to you, there's a book called The Propaganda Handbook. And in it, it's, there's six points. It says, disguise the source, be selective about the truth, make false connections, create fear, repeat endlessly, and exploit existing beliefs. Now that sounds to me as if the plot or the agenda that was against this school from the very beginning, you know, satisfied everything out of that handbook. So did we have, as a community, did we have an appreciation of there was something bigger going on and that we need to fight it in a different way? Or did we, you know, were we kind of almost sleepwalking into things? And would we do things differently next time something like this happened? From, from my point of view as an educationalist, really, I wouldn't have done anything different regardless because I've been doing that quite openly and transparently. Uh, and I've been doing that for since 2001, uh, you know, since 2000. So there's nothing new about that. That was old stuff, really. There was nothing new that we were doing. What had changed was not what we were doing. What had changed was the climate in the country, the Islamophobic, uh, you know, drum beating uh, and the impact of that, that had changed. The government had changed. There was a policy shift as well, you know, a sort of um, counter-entryism. Uh, due diligence units were set up in the Department for Education. Um, and even before that, to be honest, you're saying if there was any forewarnings and so on, um, I'm just sort of stretching my mind a little further back, really, uh, which is that um, the, the, um, with the free schools movement, there were interventions by the Department of Education where in, uh, there was a spate of um, cancellation, if you like, and, uh, and closures of free schools that were led by Muslims. Now, that's the important criteria. They were led by Muslims. Uh, for example, the um, Langton of Light School in Huddersfield, uh, their application was almost approved. And then there was some one letter went in to say, oh, they're forcing uh, some parents to sign and saying that, you know, you're not a good Muslim if you don't support the, the founding or the establishment of the free school in Huddersfield. And that was basically it. So the Department for Education, there was one, one or two articles run on that. I'm sure you can find the articles in the press if you look hard enough. You will find that that school then basically there under Michael Gove's leadership we're talking about now, they withdrew their application. Another school in Nottingham, exactly the same, led by Muslims. At the very end, they even invested their own money in there as well. And then the department pulled the plug on the whole thing without giving a reason, no reason given. Just pull, plug, pull the plug and go home and sit and have coffee in a sanctuary building, which is the Department for Education offices. 
they didn't want to engage. They just uh, went off, which is very unusual. They wouldn't give a reason. We know what the reason was, I, I think. I mean, I'm kind of a good guess what the reason was. The school was Muslim-led. So there were these kind of things happening. Uh, and there was another school in Bradford. And uh, the very public offensive, if you like, which pre, uh, predated Parkview, you will remember, is the Medina uh, school in Derby, a primary school and a secondary school. Uh, the, the way they were treated was very similar to Parkview. Exactly the same uh, uh, blueprint for the operation. Exactly the same blueprint. What was the complaint that triggered the whole thing? Look, this is uh, the complaint against Parkview was the initial one that was raised on the 23rd of February 2014 was that non-Muslims are being discriminated against. That was the allegation. Okay, Non-Muslims are being discriminated against um, by these Muslims. That was the allegation in the Telegraph article, okay, by Richard Karbaj and uh, Sean Griffiths. That was the first article that was published. Um, and uh, so, so Medina School was exactly the same pattern. What was the complaint? Oh, they're forcing uh, the non-Muslim teachers to wear the hijab in the school. And of course, the media camped outside. They started beating the drums. And they took the school down. The after inspectors came in uh, and they failed the school, although the school had very good report from before. The academic performance was fine. And what was this triggered by? This is very interesting. Um, it was triggered by the principal, actually, the, their principal was a gentleman who was a, a, a Christian background. They got on with, with well, uh, got, got on with him quite well. And then they had some disagreement with him um, and he fell out with them and he did a whistleblowing letter to the Department for Education and surprise, surprise, the rest you can read the newspaper headlines and you know what they did to them, yeah? So it was, it was, it was so the, what happened to Parkview School is, is very similar to what happened to Medina School as well. And I know the inside story of that school reasonably well, not very well, because I went to see them and I visited them. So I'm familiar with that. So, this, so you, you're saying, well, did did we? Uh, what were the reasons? Why was did it happen? Were we naive, you know, for doing what we were doing? No, we I, we would always been doing what we had been doing. It was perfectly fine. It was loaded by the uh, local education authority. What we were doing it was in line with Sacre's requirements for you know provision of religious aspects and so on. We were 100% compliant. There was no question about that whatsoever. I was member of Sacre myself. And I've been there for many years. I mean, you know, it's very clear to me as as a as an educationalist that many of my students uh, they fear showing so overtly their Islam uh, in at school and and you know um, things that that probably you know ten years back Muslim students were quite open to uh, to to call for to ask for provisions like prayer in schools and and time out for Jummah. These things are now heavily politicized and. And you know, sometimes even in some schools, um, they they become um, immersed with the whole prevent agenda. And so, if you're if you're praying too much at school, uh, that may be a sign of radicalization. And you know, I think a lot of this came out of um, you know the Trojan horse affair and and, and you know Michael Gove's uh, engagement with that. Yeah, I think he played a quite a substantial role. 
because the stash, don't forget the um, the statutorization of prevent and um, I'm not an expert on prevent or anything, but I know uh, their impact on Muslim children. And you're quite rightfully say that what this has done is that it has uh, is that it has forced Muslim children to be uh, reticent with respect to expressing their Islamic views and perspectives within classrooms. And there is plenty of evidence for that. For example, in London, in a London school, somebody did research on this, and they asked parents and they asked the children why they didn't want to make a comment on some uh, you know political event in London. And uh, which was quite a big event, I think it's some kind of a explosion or terrorist attack or something like that. And the Muslim children wouldn't say anything at all. So the teacher was a bit alarmed by the whole thing. It was in the media and so on, and there was writing about that as well. So she basically was quite disturbed. She was quite um, alarmed that you know this is very odd behavior. So anyway, she asked the children later, and they saw that so many of the children said that we don't want to say that in case we get accused of something. And some of them said that our parents told us not to speak about Islam in school because you just get picked up for something, you know. And this is the whole the, the, the point. The point is that this is not an accident or something. This is the intended purpose of uh, of the prevent program. It is actually a way into Muslim families. Yeah. It isn't the fact that your five-year-old is going to uh, do something, you know, radical or something dangerous or extreme or whatever. No, but it is a way of monitoring the beliefs and the values of people. And the the problem with all of this, of course, is that, you know, uh, things have moved from, say, you know, a, a space which is uh, which is kind of a, a crime arena or crime space, if you like. We moved into civil liberties. Is what's happened. So we're in the civil liberties domain now, and uh, some things which are very normal. For example, I mean, I give you an example of one child. Parents was parents was waking the child up to pray fajr, you know, at five o'clock in the morning. So obviously that became a concern. So when they when they found out when the child mentioned that, you know, I pray in the morning and I get up five o'clock, and the child was proud of that. To be honest, he was kind of uh, gloating or showing off. He said, you know, I, I pray five o'clock. And when the teachers found out, uh, you know, they, they basically called their parents in and they interrogated the child. They said, oh, what time you get up? You do this every day, whatever. This, And they basically were trying to interrogate the parent as to why the child was being made to wake up at five o'clock in the morning. Now, quite frankly, it's none of your business. <laughs> it's none of their business. You know, if the child is getting up and for fajr in the five o'clock in the morning, but you can see that prevent is uh, is is uh, is um, you know is sort of encouraging promoting teachers to view the muslim child with suspicion to view muslim parents with suspicion and so on similarly we're giving uh, there are many other examples as well one child in a birmingham school they went into a forest trip of some description so the boy said you know sir i want to pray you know it's during the daytime and i want to pray here and the next thing you know is the teacher thought that was very odd. Why does the child want to pray here? He was a, he was a 10 year old or something, uh, primary school age anyway, I think he was 10 year old. And the school, the, the teacher came back and he reported him to the uh, safeguarding lead uh, who had responsibility for this. And the matter was referred to prevent. That this is very unusual. In other words, this is extremist behavior. So when you 
when you sort of uh, you know introduce these kind of measures, these are completely unjust. They are not justified, and we are not being treated as equal citizens to marginalize a community, to target a community, to view it as as if they were all a suspect community viewed through the prism of uh, you know extremism and radicalization and essentially problematizing Islam. Prevent has problematized Islam rather than seeing it as a great civilization religion from which people can learn, even if they are not believers in it, they can appreciate wisdom, you know, and people do that. And they can sort of partake in those things and appreciate that there's goodness. They can disagree with some parts of it. Of course they can. But instead of that, what we have is, you know, this kind of a problematizing of Islam and therefore stigmatizing Muslim children and future generations. And this is the tragedy of, of, of the whole thing. And do you feel let down by the Muslim community and, and Muslim organizations? Um, I mean, I, I, I know that after the Trojan horse affair, there wasn't a, uh, a fight back from the Muslim community, or at least I didn't see, uh, I see one in, in sort of the broader Muslim community, maybe in, in, in some circles in, around you in, in Birmingham. I know there were a few meetings that were held and, and even some non-Muslims came to support you, like Peter Oborn. But I didn't get the impression from many Muslim organizations that this was a, a, a battle worth fighting. Yeah, I think many people uh, who are closely associated to me, worked in these schools, are impacted by the, uh, by the whole episode. Um, you know, they did feel, uh, I'm not speaking on just my behalf, but they did feel, and I, I agree with them, that the Muslim community's response was very subdued. Um, partly because of the uh, sensationist headlines about extremism, about terrorism, about misogyny, and all kinds of allegations were being made. They were baseless. And there was no foundation to any of them, as we know now, obviously. None, no extremism was found, no radicalization activities were found, no red curriculum supporting that or atmosphere or ethos supporting that at all. Nothing was found, but nonetheless, people became frightened, they became fearful. And uh, they didn't want association with people like myself uh, because they thought that it would compromise them in their own professional positions. Um, and if they're working in the education sector, for example, that they may, be, uh, they may suffer a detriment, um, you know, and they may get bullied or forced out of their job or something, maybe associated with the Trojan horse plot, as it were. Uh, so these were concerns that people had, they were frightened. Uh, and that and, and that wasn't an accident or anything. That was very, very deliberate. Uh, the fear, you quoted those six stages here. This is the fear. Well, the fear is very important. If you want to justify uh, measures, if you want to justify interventions and, um, you know, uh, disproportionate measures, then you have to have fear in order for those measures to go through. Because under normal circumstances, people, the public broadly, you know, who have good sense of justice and so on, they will not like that. They will say, oh, this is not right. This is not fair. They will object to those things. But if you whip up hysteria and fear, then they will buy into that. So I think that, as I spoke about earlier, that there was kind of a social acceptance was being created that, look, these guys are up to no good, okay? Although there's no evidence base for any of it. But nonetheless, uh, that was the... Uh, atmosphere which which did create a fear in the muslim community and it had a very very chilling effect where you know muslim children certainly are self self-censoring themselves 
parents are saying to them to self-censor as well because they don't want to come back on those things and uh, prevent are creating lists. So if you look at uh, the list for children, you know, five, six-year-old, if he says anything, that's whatever, they go on the list. They're not telling you that, but I'm telling you that they're going on the list uh, because there's somebody sitting there. You know, the problem with this entire approach actually is that, you know, when you employ people in these kind of roles to justify their role, they will always exaggerate, yeah? And try to basically hang people, to find people. You know, they say, if you're looking for trouble, you'll find it around the corner, yeah? So these guys are looking for radicals and extremists and, uh, you know, something to report to justify their job so their job can continue for another 10 years. So you will get, you know, people who are trigger happy to actually do that. And there's a lot of evidence for that as well. We've talked about a lot about, you know, where Prevent has brought us and where the Trojan um, horse uh, letter and the plot has brought to uh, brought the Muslim community to now. Um, I guess my question is, is where do we go from here? You know, what, what do we do? Do we, how do we approach this issue now as a community, both from a, a failing school point of view in terms of what you've described earlier, in terms of how we uplift, you know, that attainment level within the schools, within our community, but also from an aspect of saving our values and kind of upkeeping our values. You know, where, where does the Muslim community go from here? What's your, what would your advice be to people who want to get involved in schools, in governorships, or just generally, uh, you know, kind of frame the kind of uh, Islamic ethos behind our younger generation? How would you yeah, kind um, of approach that? I think I'll make a few points, actually, which are important. And um, uh, the top of those points is that it is very important that Muslims influence and shape the education of their own children. I couldn't emphasize that more. Okay. Uh, and uh, parents can do many things within the home and parents can have the option to send their children to independent schools if they can afford to. And if the children go to schools, which are state schools, it's very important that they speak to their children that they interact with the school as well, because you because not everybody, what we shouldn't do is to disengage, because this is what the people who pushed us out, that's what they wanted, okay? So if the Muslim community disengages from schools and institutions of this country, then we are doing a terrible disservice to the people of this country, to our neighbors and to this society. As Muslims, we should bring faith, goodness to whatever environment we are in. This is the important thing, okay? This is the mission you know, of Islam, the purpose of Islam, yeah? that we bring mercy, kindness, and raham to the environment, to the people, to the neighbors, and to the mankind. So if we, we cannot, uh, the, our enemies, if you like, our protagonists would want us to become um, you know, discouraged, to become disheartened, and to take a back seat and to become recluses. No, we have to stand up for these things and actively ensure that our children are educated, you know, to, to succeed uh, in the dunya and also in the akhirah. So they are successful in those things. And the way we can ensure that is through participating in these things. We should continue to encourage people to become involved in education, in establishing new schools, in becoming teachers. It's very important. The Muslim representation is very poor. Um, 
you know, in relation to our actual population uh, and people in leadership positions and so on, it's very important that we continue to do that. And one of the most damaging aspects of this whole uh, saga and episode has been actually that uh, the Muslim leadership of school was, schools was attacked. And what has happened is that and other legislation has been changed as well, actually, which, which has reduced parental participation as kind of, uh, I mean, the stakeholder model has been completely removed. Stakeholder model means that where people whose children come to the school, for example, one third of the parents on the governing bodies used to be like parents, but now the system is completely gone. What that means is this, the accountability, the capacity of the communities to hold the schools to account to challenge the schools to, to, to be accountable as well in terms of the academic performance, in terms of the uh, prov other provision uh, within the school as well, that has been diminished quite substantially. If you are a Muslim parent or a Muslim governor and you make noise, you risk actually being part of the Trojan horse plot and exhibiting behaviors which are indicative of the Trojan horse plot. That is, that you are challenging uh, the school and that you are making demands of the school and you are persistent in that. And the chances are that the local authority is mandated to have people sitting there to whom the referrals can be made that the governor A, Mr. Riaz, is a troublemaker and he's pushing an Islamic agenda because he wants prayer room or that he is actually giving the head teacher a very hard time because the school is failing all the children, its results are 30% and he's not happy. What we did actually in the Parkview uh, scenario, in the Parkview school was that there was an accepted belief amongst local authorities, amongst generally teachers, amongst generally, uh, with some exceptions perhaps, amongst Ofsted inspectors as well, that children from these kind of backgrounds, 70% children on free school meals, high socioeconomic deprivation factors, ethnic minorities, English as a second language, all those host of, uh, you know, bundle of reasons that should actually result in very heavy level of underachievement. All those factors were there. But what we proved was that this established narrative, wisdom, established nationally across number of uh, organizations, and responsible bodies like Ofsted, like um, local authorities, and also uh, teaching fraternities as well, that this conclusion was false. We completely broke the back of this conclusion. Nobody could say that actually, that these factors were not surmountable and they were surmountable in a sustained manner, not a blip. It's not like one year, you know, you get a good cohort, you know, like a very bright year and the results can go up and the following year you'll be down again. I remember the first year results went into the 70s. Uh, some, some people were saying, oh no, it's probably a blip, you know, they had a very good year, very good cohort and you get that whatever. Well, they stayed in the 70s uh, from then onwards. They never came down. So it was sustained. So if your child entered this school, they were going to get this result. You know, it was set, it was set in stone. That's what's going to happen. And if your child didn't make it, you know, the our school became so popular, our intake in the school was 300 meters. 
If you lived more than 300 meters, you will not get a place in the school because nobody from the area was sending child children to anywhere else outside. And people were trying to get in from other schools into the school, they can't get in. We were the second most oversubscribed school after the grammar schools. Yeah, grammar school was top. We were second most oversubscribed school in the city of Birmingham. Everybody wanted to send the children to our school because they knew we were guaranteeing outcomes. If the child entered here, then the trajectory was clear. The pathway was clear. And uh, where is it now? It, I think the results uh, for the last few years have been in their 40s. I think this year they just uh, passed the 50. While the Department for Education might say Mr. Tahir Alam is a bad guy and we barred him and so on, the people who destroyed, these people who intervened yeah, in, this, in these schools, they destroyed the education of our children. Okay, Quite frankly, it is criminal. And I can tell you, when we left, when I uh, resigned, the school results were 72%. The school results went down to in the 40s, in the 40s, yeah? Two years later, in 2016, I think, 2016 inspection, guess what? The school from being category four inadequate, lowest grading four, it was scored as being good. So for 75% down to 40 something, and the Ofsted grading is going the other way. I mean, the fallacy of the whole thing and the farcical interventions. And, and that, sorry, one more thing. The other school we ran across the road, school to which I went as a pupil, Nansen School. I went to Nansen School, which is the school we ran. I also, as a pupil, went to Parkview School. Okay, these are both schools that I went to. And that's where I went back to make a difference, if you like. Nansen School is now, uh, as uh, when we were there, the results were 71%. Yeah, some criteria has changed, but Nansen result is now, uh, 30 something percent and the school has now been put into special measures it's a failing school now so this is the real impact we're talking about what's the impact of trojan horse well one is the removal of accountability if your school is failing it's going to continue to fail for decades to come because there's no mechanism for people to intervene and to inter to interject the process of consistent and sustained failure over decades which is what had happened before what was happening before and is happening now and it's not being challenged. And I am sure it is the same in, um, in Luton as well. And people have got their little 50% bad mark. It's okay for 50% people to fail. So this is the lasting impact of, uh, of uh, the entire Trojan horse affair. Accountabilities have been removed and the schools have been failed and they'll be failing. I mean, how many years is it now? It's seven, eight years ago. And what's happened to the schools? I mean, that's very revealing, I think, uh, Brother Dyer. I mean, do you feel that uh, organizations like Ofsted have been compromised, politically compromised uh, by the conservatives in particular, who've uh, used it as a way to pursue their, their very overt uh, Islamophobic agenda? Yeah. I mean, they're weaponized in relation to our schools. They're weaponized Ofsted. Ofsted is supposed to be independent of the Department for Education. OK, there's a reason for that. And the, the reasons are good. It's a good setup. It's a good plan and, uh, and, and a good principle to follow. But uh, Ofsted was weaponized. They were, go, they were, they were essentially um, you know, arm twisted into taking these schools down when there was no justification for taking the schools down. So uh, that has established a pattern now, you see. It's the same uh, interference which 
when the upstate inspectors came in 2016 is the same interference which allowed the school to be graded from inadequate to good when the results were going the other way around. Are you with me? So the entire set of criteria had actually altered. So school is no longer graded on performance, academic performance, the education opportunities and the platforms that are given to children on the back of academic performance, but it's based on something else. Maybe if they are promoting, I don't know, whatever their British values might be, okay? So this school is now good rated because maybe they're good at promoting whatever British values might be, or whatever the case is. But it certainly is not academic performance um, that is being used as the main criteria for grading schools anymore. So even that has been, even that has changed following the, following the Trojan horse affair. So the Trojan horse affair has affected many, many things, including Ofsted, I know you're you're pressed for time, but I, I do really want to ask you a, a, a question about uh, the future of Muslims uh, in this country. Actually, I mean, many Muslims now see their position uh, in this country as uh, as um, as very precarious. I mean, I I spent the last six months in in Istanbul, and I met plenty of Muslims from the West, uh, young Muslims who've got young families. And the number one reason behind why they've moved to Istanbul, and it could have been any Muslim country, to be honest, was that uh, they feared uh, the future of their kids in in Muslim, in in, in education in in uh, in this country. And and uh, I would imagine um, uh, events like uh, the Trojan Horse affair played a part in them forming a view about um, whether they could successfully navigate. Uh, the uh, the education system and and um, survive you know uh, uh, in if they decided to uh, to take a proactive role in in the education of their children. I mean, what's your thinking? I mean, is the game up for for us as a Muslim community? Are we are we moving down a French uh, pathway where uh, the Muslims are disempowered and and the state has the the biggest impact on the future of our kids? I mean, certainly, I mean, I, I would, uh, uh, you know, agree with the concerns that parents have. Uh, we clearly in the last, uh, you know, decade, decade and a half have not moved in the right direction, but in the wrong direction in terms of civil liberties of not just Muslims, actually, but more wider as well. We've, we've become a much more authoritarian uh, society, less, the, less democratic as well in terms of operations and things. An example of that within the education is the disbandment of the stakeholder model, uh, which obviously uh, uh, David Cameron spoke about big society. I mean, that was just a slogan, really. What they created was a tiny society or a you know smaller society, not a big society. So these are just slogans that people talk about. So we have we are moved in the wrong direction, and uh, the entire Europe has moved in the wrong direction, actually. And uh, this is born out of, in my view, this is born out of insecurity because I think there's genuine confusion uh, within sort of Western nations generally. There's a loss of confidence, if you like, as well, a loss of direction, loss of confidence, loss of ideological um, form as well, if you like, you know, standing for certain things. And people are not clear about those things anymore, you know, and things have become vague. Um, and, 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 and that has created an insecurity. And therefore, whenever you're feeling insecure, you will then want to blame somebody, you will find somebody, uh, you know, who you think is the culprit, you know, and other people. 
And as part of that, of course, the discrimination against Muslims and, and other communities as well. I mean, look at the Windrush generation, okay? Uh, we can sort of think of ourselves as victims and so on, and there's a lot of truth in that, quite obviously, but uh, look at the Windrush generation. Somebody's lived here for 50 years. There may, uh, rules have been made for them that they can be just, uh, you know, told, absolutely, you're going home now, that's the end of that. Well, I've lived there 50 years, I've paid taxes for 50 years. No, no, you haven't got the right paper, go home. I mean, it's just ridiculous and inhumane, but people don't have a problem with enacting these kind of terrible laws, which, which completely disregard the fact that somebody's you know, lived there for so long, they've been part of this country and they lived here and suddenly their rights and their passports can be completely uh, you know, thrown in the dustbin uh, as if they didn't live here. So this is a, a, a really, a, it, it's a sad trajectory for this country. Uh, you know, and um, and in, and I don't want to paint gloomy pictures here or anything, but I think that you know people who stand for justice, people who stand for freedom, who want to make good societies, should work for creating good society. Good societies are not made by accident. People participate, people stand up, people take action, uh, and that's how good society, that's how goodness prevails. So we must always promote goodness, you know, for all people. Uh, and that's what we must always work for. This is part of the Islamic duty and it's duty of every human being as well, I believe. You know, the prophet peace be upon him, he said that if you see a wickedness, an evil or a wrongdoing, injustice, all of those things, he said, stop it with your hand. So if you have the authority and you have the power, then you stop it with a hand. You don't speak against it, you stop it using your authority, your power uh, uh, and, and so on and your influence. You do that. So we are always trying to do that, trying to make society better uh, and a more just society, a more peaceful society. And he said, if you cannot do that, if that is beyond your, you don't have any power and authority, then you try to change it with your, uh, by, with, with your tongue, yeah? by speech. And speech can obviously be written, includes written. It includes what you're doing, screen media. It includes, um, you know, just speaking generally to people as well, whether in written form, print format, or video format, whatever it might be, or radio format you were doing. Yeah, with me? So, so you, you use these avenues to always uphold the truth, uphold the justice, and, and always, uh, you know, uh, contribute towards the betterment of people and society and bring hate to the world. This is what it's about. So whatever the situation is, wherever you go in the world, you know, there are different challenges. You go to Saudi Arabia, there'll be different challenges than here. Okay, maybe not the same ones, but there'll be other ones. You go to Turkey, there'll be this type of challenge, but not that type of challenge. You go to Pakistan, it's the same. We created the human being definitely in a state of struggle and strife. So these kind of challenges and ups and downs, these are part of life, okay? And we are judged according to you know our involvement and our participation, our response, um, you know, in uh, to these situations and the challenges that we face. So, um, uh, so as uh, Iqbal, uh, you know, very famously in his uh, in his uh, share, you know, he says, "Tundiye baade mukhalif se na gabra e akab." He says, "Tundiye baade mukhalif se na gabra e akab." He says, "O eagle, do not be afraid, do not be fearful or frightened by the ferocity of the wind that blows against you." Don't be frightened by that. Yeah, its purpose is to raise your altitude. 
yeah because the eagle uses the goes into the wind when it raises it wants to raise its altitude you know as a aerodynamic phenomena yeah so it goes into the wind he says do not be frightened by that it just means that we have to raise our game yeah this is what Iqbal is saying that if you if you if you receive opposition then you have to have uh, strength courage determination and it is you see it as an opportunity to raise your game rather than you know cower and uh, and and uh, run away and those kind of things and those people who want to i suppose uh, have gone to other countries done hijra if you like i deeply respect them i think that their concerns are very valid um, and one of the most important of we we should uh, one of the fundamental human rights actually is that we should be able to raise your children upon parents should be able to raise their children upon their own philosophical and religious convictions. It's part of the Human Rights Act as well, more nationally and European-wide as well, that it's not for state or other people to basically start indoctrinating and brainwashing other people's children ideologically, religiously, into something else which the parents are not you know, happy with. So these things are being impinged upon as well. Uh, certainly in France, I mean, the situation is very bad. Uh, it's basically, uh, you know, hitting a, you know, um, almost a Nazi kind of level of oppression and persecution. I mean, it's a persecutory state, quite frankly. Uh, and the human rights mean nothing in France anymore. Um, and uh, so these things we have to oppose and stand up, really. And these are, uh, you know, the trials of life. But we have to uh, raise our game, is what I would say. Tahir Alam, Jazakallah Khair for your contribution today to our podcast. And uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala use this, uh, the challenges that come out of this um, uh, situation to to improve our community and to embolden, I think, uh, many Muslims uh, who seek to have a better life for themselves and their families. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.